Chapter Two of Nothing of Importance by Bernard Adams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Kianchi and Givenchy. Throughout October and November, our battalion was in the firing line. This meant that we spent life in an everlasting alternation between the trenches and our billets behind, just far enough behind, that is, to be out of the range of the light artillery always, though, liable to be called suddenly into the firing line, and never out of the atmosphere of the trenches. Always before us was dangled a promised rest, and always it was being postponed. Rumours were spread, dissected, laughed at, and eventually treated with bored incredulity. The battalion had had no rest, I believe, since May. Men, and especially NCOs, who had been out since October 1914, were tired out in body and spirit. With the officers and certain new drafts of men it was different. We came out enthusiastic and keen. On the whole, I thoroughly enjoyed those first two months. I am surprised now to see how much detail I wrote in my letters home. Everything was fresh, everything new and interesting, and things were on the whole very quiet. We had a few casualties, but underwent no serious bombardment, and most important to us, of course, we had no casualties among the officers. Givenchy and Kionchy are two small villages, north and south respectively, of the La Bassie Canal, which runs almost due east and west between La Bassie and Bethune. Givenchy stands on a slight rise in the flattest of flat countries. A church-tower of red brick must have been the most noticeable feature as one walked in pre-war days from the suburbs of Bethune along the Bassi Road. Kyoshi is a village straggling along a road. Both are as completely reduced to ruins as villages can be, the firing line running just east of them. Between them flows the great sluggish canal. During an afternoon in Bethune, one could do all the shopping one required, and get a haircut and shampoo as well. Expensive cocktails were obtained at the local bar. There was also a famous tea-shop. We were billeted in one of the small villages around. Sometimes we only stayed one night at a billet. There was always change, always movement. Sometimes I got a bed. Often I did not. But a valise is comfortable enough when once its tricks are mastered. Anyhow, it is billets, and not trenches, that is the point. A continuous night's rest in pyjamas, the facilities of a bath, very often a free afternoon and evening, and no equipment and revolver to carry night and day. It was in billets the following letters were written, which are really the best description of my life at this period. 19th October, 1915 our battalion went into the trenches on the 14th and came out on the 17th. Our company, B, was in support. The front line was about 300 yards ahead, and we held the second line, everything prepared to meet an attack in case the enemy broke through the first line. Halfway between our first and second lines was a kind of redoubt, to be held at all costs. For three days and nights I was in command of this redoubt, isolated and ready with stores, ammunition, water, barbed wire and pickets, bombs and tools, to hold out a little siege for several days if necessary. 
I used to leave it to get meals at Company HQ, in the support line. Otherwise, I had always to be there, ready for instant action. No one used to get more than two or three hours consecutive sleep, and I could never take off boots, equipment, or revolver. Here is a typical scene in the redoubt. Scene. A dugout. Six feet by four feet by four feet. Smell. Earthy. Time. 2.30 a.m. I awake and listen. Deathly stillness. A voice. What's the time, kid? Another voice. Dunno. About two o'clock, I reckon. Past that. Long silence. Rum job this is, ain't it, kid? Why? Well, I reckon if the damn Huns were coming over, we'd know it long before they got here. I reckon we'd hear the boys in front firing. Long pause. I dunno. Suppose there's some sense in it, else we wouldn't be here. Silence. Damn cold on this damn fire-step. Guess it's time they relieved us. Long silence. Don't them flares look funny in the mist? Yes, I guess old Fritz uses some of them every night. Hullo, there they go again. Hear that machine-gun? Long pause, during which machine-guns pop and snipers snipe merrily, and flares light up the sky. Trench mortars begin behind us. Whish! Silence. Thud. Then the Germans reply, sending two or three over, which thud harmlessly behind. The invisible sentries have now become clearly visible to me as I look out of my dugout. Two of them are about ten yards apart, standing on the fire platform. Theirs is the above dialogue. With a sudden thud, a trench-mortar shell drops fifteen yards behind us. Hello! Fritz is getting the wind up. Getting the wind up is slang for getting nervous. This stolid comment from a sentry is typical of the attitude adopted towards Fritz, the German, when he starts shelling or finding. He is supposed to be a bit jumpy. It seems hard to realize that Fritz is really trying to kill these sentries. The whole thing seems a weird, strange play. I make an effort and crawl out of the dugout. The strafing has died down. Only occasional flares climb up from the German lines and pop, pop, in the morning mist. I go round the sentries, standing up by them and looking over the parapet. It is cold and raw, and the sentries are looking forward to the next relief. Ah! There is the corporal on trench duty coming. I can hear him routing out the snoring relief. Ping! Goes a stray bullet singing by, a ricochet by its sound. A near one, sir? Yes, Evans, safer in the front line. I guess it is, sir. Then the sentries changed. I turned back again to my dugout. Sleeping with revolvers and equipment requires some care of position. Half-past four, sir comes after a pause and some sleep. Out I get, and everybody stands to arms for an hour, each man taking up the position allotted to him along the fire platform. Gradually it gets light. Some brick stacks grow out of the mist in front, and ruined cottages loom up in the rear and what was a church. The fire platform being here pretty high, one can look back over the parados over bare flat country cut up by trenches, and run to waste terribly. Parados, by the way, is the name given to the back of a trench. At five-thirty, 
Stand down and clean rifles, is the order given, and the cleaning commences, a process as oft-repeated as washing up in civilized lands, and as monotonous and unsatisfactory, for a few hours later the rifles are a bit rusty and muddy again, and need another inspection. 7.30. Tell Sergeant Summers I'm going down to company headquarters. Very good, sir. Then I take a long, mazy journey down the communication trench, which is six feet deep at least, and mostly paved with bricks from a neighbouring brickfield. There are an amazing lot of mice about the trenches, and they fall in and can't get out. Most of them get squashed. Frogs, too, which make a green and worse mess than the mice. Our CO always stops and throws a frog out if he meets one. Tommy, needless to say, is not so sentimental. These trenches have been built a long time, and grass stalks, dried scabious, and plantain stalks grow over the edges, which must make them very invisible from above. H Street, L Lane, C Road, P Lane are traversed, and so into S Street where, in the cellar of what was once a house, are two hungry officers already started on bacon and eggs, coffee, with condensed milk, and bread and tinned jam. We are lucky with three chairs and a table. A newspaper makes an admirable tablecloth, and a bottle a good candlestick, and there is room in a cellar to stand up. Breakfast done, a shave is manipulated, Meadows, my servant, getting ready my tackle and producing a mug of hot water. 9.30 finds me back in the redoubt and starting a working party on repairing a communication trench and generally improving the trenches. Working parties are unpopular. Tommy does not believe in improving trenches he may never see again. And so the day goes on. Sentries change and take their place, sitting gazing into a scrap of mirror. Ration parties come up, with Dixies carried on wooden pickets, and the pioneer generally cleans up, sprinkling chloride of lime about in white showers, which seems as plentiful as the sand of the seashore, and the odour of which clings to the trenches as the smell of seaweed does to the beach. The redoubt was in the Quanchy trenches, and that old cellar was really a delightful headquarters. The first time we were in it we found a cat there, on the second occasion the same cat appeared with three lusty kittens. These used to keep the place clear of rats and get sat on every half hour or so. I soon learned to get used to smoke. On one occasion the smoke from our brazier became so thick that Gray, the cook, threatened to resign, for all the smoke gathers at the top of a dugout and seems impossibly suffocating to anyone first entering yet it is often practically clear two or three feet from the ground, so that when lying or sitting one does not notice the smoke at all. But a newcomer gets his eyes so stung that it seems impossible that anyone can live in the dugout at all. Gray, by the way, was not allowed to resign. Here follows a letter describing the front trenches at Givenchy. 7th November on the twenty-ninth we marched off at nine and halted at eleven for dinner. Luckily it was fine, and the piled arms, the steaming dixies, and the groups of men sitting about, eating and smoking, formed a pleasant sight. Our grub was put by mistake on the mess-cart, which went straight on to the trenches. 
Edwards, however, our company mess president, came up to the scratch with bread, butter, and eggs. Tea was easily procured from the cookers. Then off we went to our HQ. There we got down into the communication trench, and in single file were taken by guides into our part of the trenches. These guides were sent by the battalion we were relieving. I told you that all the trenches have names, which are painted on boards hung up at the trench corners. The first thing done was to post sentries along our company front. Until this was done, the outgoing battalion could not outgo. Each man has his firing position allotted to him, and he always occupies it at stand-to and stand-down. We were three days and three nights in the trenches. Each officer was on duty for eight hours, during which he was responsible for a sector of firing line and must be actually in the front trench. My watch was twelve to four, a.m. and p.m., Work that out with stand two in the morning and also in the evening, and you will see that consecutive sleep is not easy. On paper, six to twelve, midnight, looks good. But then, remember, dinner at seven or seven-thirty, according to the fire, while you may have to turn out any time if you are being shelled at all. For instance, one night, I was just turning in early at seven, when a mine went up on our right, and shelling and general strafing kept me out till nine-thirty, after which I couldn't sleep. So at midnight I was tired when I started my four hours, turning in at four, out again for stand-to, eight, breakfast, nine, rifle inspection, and so it goes on. This is why you can appreciate billets, and bed from nine to seven if you want it. Imagine a cold November night, with a ground fog, what bliss to be roused from a snug dugout at midnight and patrol the company's line for four interminable hours it is deathly quiet has the war stopped i stand up on the fire step beside the sentry and try to see through the fog pip 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 goes a machine gun so the war's still on cold i ask a sentry only me feet sir why don't you stamp your feet then this being equivalent to an order, Tommy stamps feebly a few times, until made to do so energetically. Unless you make him stamp, he will not stamp, would infinitely prefer to let his feet get cold as ice. Of course, when you have gone into the next bay, he immediately stops. Still, that is Tommy. I gaze across into no man's land. I can just see our wire, and in front a collection of old tins, bully tins, jam tins, butter tins, paper, old bits of equipment. Other regiments always leave places so untidy. You clean up, but when you come into trenches, you find the other fellows have left things about. You work hard repairing the trenches. The relieving regiment, you find on your return, has done damn all, which is military slang for nothing. And all other regiments, it seems, have the same complaint. Swish! A German flare rocket lights up everything. You see our trenches all along. Everything is as clear as day. You feel as conspicuous as a cromlech on a hill. But the enemy can't see you, fog or no fog, if you only keep still. The light has fallen on the parapet this time, and lies sizzling on the sandbags. 
a flicker and it is gone. And in the fog you see black blobs, the size and shape of the dazzling light you've just been staring at. Crack, plop, crack, plop. A couple of bullets bury themselves in the sandbags, or else, with a long-drawn ping, go singing over the top. Why the sentries never get hit seems extraordinary. I suppose a mathematician would by combination and permutation tell you the chances against bullets aimed at a venture, hitting sentries exposing one-fourth of their persons at a given elevation at so many paces interval. Personally, I won't try, as my whole object is to keep awake till four o'clock, and then I shall be too sleepy. Only remember, it is night, and the sentries are invisible. Tap, tap, tap. There's a wiring party out, sir. I've heard em these last five minutes. Undoubtedly there are a few men out in no man's land, repairing their wire. I tell the sentries near to look out and be ready to fire, and then I send off a very flare, fired by a thick cartridge from a thick-barreled brass pistol. It makes a good row, and has a fair kick so it is best to rest the butt on the parapet and hold it at arm's length. Even so, it leaves your ears singing for hours. The first shot was a failure, only a miserable rocket-tail which failed to burst. The second was a magnificent shot. It burst beautifully, and fell right behind the party, two Germans, and silhouetted them, falling and burning still incandescent on the ground behind. A volley of fire followed from our waiting sentries. I could not see if the party were hit. Most of the shots were fired after the light had died out. Anyhow, the working party stopped. The two figures stood quite motionless while the flare burned. The Germans opposite us were very lively. One could often hear them whistling, and one night they were shouting to one another like anything. They were Saxons, who are always at that game. No one knows exactly what it means. It was quite cold, almost frosty, and the sound came across the hundred yards or so of no man's land with a strange clearness in the night air. The voices seemed unnaturally near, like voices on the water heard from a cliff. Tommy, Tommy, Allemands bon, English bon, we hate the grand prince. I can hear how the nasal twang with which the grand was emphasized. Damn the Kaiser! Deutschland unter alles! I could hear these shouts almost distinctly. The same sentences were repeated again and again. They shouted to one another from one part of the line to another, generally preceding each sentence by Kamerad. Often you hear loud hearty laughter, as comic cuts the name given to the daily intelligence reports, sagely remarked. Either this means that there is a spirit of dissatisfaction among the Saxons, or it is a ruse to try and catch us unawares, or it is mere foolery, wisdom in high places. Really, it was intensely interesting. "'Come over!' shouted Tommy. "'We are not coming over!' came back. Loud clapping and laughter followed remarks like, we hate the grand prince. Then they would yodel and sing like anything. Tommy replied with Tipperary. They sang, God save the king, or rather their German equivalent of it, to the familiar tune. Then, abide with us, 
rose into the night air and starlight. This went on for an hour and a half, though almost any night you can hear them shout something and give a yodel. It is the strangest thing I have ever experienced. The authorities now try and stop our fellows answering. The entente of last Christmas is not to be repeated. One of the officers in our battalion has shown me several German signatures on his pay-book. He was in the ranks then. Given in friendly exchange, in the middle of no-man's land last Christmas day. I have had my baptism of mud now. It tires me to think of it, and I have not the effort to write fully about it. The second time we were in these trenches, the mud was two feet deep. Even our company headquarters, a cellar, was covered with mud and slime. Parados's and communication trenches had fallen in, and the going was terrible. The sticky mud yoiked one's boots off nearly, and it felt as if one's foot would be broken in extricating it. We all wore gum-boots, of blue-black rubber, that came right up to the waist like fishermen's waders. But the mud is everywhere, and we get our arms all plastered with it as we literally reel to and fro along the trench, every now and again steadying ourselves against slimy sandbags. One or two men actually got stuck, and had to be helped out with spades. One fellow lost heart, and left one of his gum-boots stuck in the mud, and turned up in my platoon in a stockinged foot, of course plastered thick with clay. We worked day and night. Gradually the problem is being tackled. Weariness. Mud. The next experience, not mentioned in my letter, was death. On our immediate right was C Company. Here our trench runs out like an inverted V, more or less, and the opposite trenches are very close together. Consequently, it is a great place for mining activity. One evening we put up a mine. The next afternoon the Germans put up a countermine, and accompanied it with a hail of trench mortars. I was on trench duty at the time, and had ample opportunity of observing the genus trench mortar and its habits. One can see them approaching some time before they actually fall, as they come from a great height, in military terms, with a steep trajectory, and one can see them revolving as they topple down. Then they fall with a thud, and black smoke comes up and mud spatters all about. Most of them were falling in our second line and support trenches. I was patrolling up and down our front trench. We were standing, too, after the mine, and for half an hour it was rather a hot shop. I was delighted to find that I rather enjoyed it, seeing one or two of the new draft, with the wind up, a bit steadied me at once. I have hardly ever since felt the slightest nervousness under fire. It is mainly temperament. Our company had four casualties, one in the front trench, the three others in the platoon in support. C Company suffered more heavily. At six, Edwards came on duty, and I was able to go in quest of two bombers who were said to be wounded. Getting near the place, I came on a man standing half-dazed in the trench. "'Oh, sir!' he cried, in burring speech of a true Welshman. "'A trench mortar has fallen in erect into me duck-out.' For the moment I felt like laughing at the man's curious speech and look, but I saw that he was greatly scared, and no wonder. 
a trench mortar had dropped right into the mouth of his dugout and had half buried two of his comrades we were soon engaged in extricating them both had bad head wounds and how he escaped is a miracle i helped carry the two men out and over the debris of flattened trenches to company headquarters so for the first time i looked upon two dying men and some of their blood was on my clothes one died in half an hour the other early next morning it was really not my job to assist the stretcher-bearers were better at it than i yet in this first little bit of strafe i was carried away by my instinct whereas later i should have been attending to the living members of my platoon and the defence of my sector i left the company sergeant-major in difficulties as to whether randall the man who had so miraculously escaped and who was temporarily dazed should be returned as sick or wounded another death that came into my close experience was that of a lance corporal in my platoon i had only spoken to him a quarter of an hour before and on returning found him lying dead on the fire platform he had been killed instantaneously by a rifle grenade i lifted the waterproof sheet and looked at him i remember that i was moved but there was nothing repulsive about his recumbent figure i think the novelty and interest of these first casualties made them quite easy to bear i was so busy noticing details the silence that reigned for a few hours in my platoon the details of removing the bodies the collecting of kit etc these things at first blunted my perception of the vileness of the tragedy nor did i feel the cruelty of war as i did later weariness mud death so it was with great joy that we would return to billets to get dry and clean to eat sleep and write letters to drill and carry out inspections. Company drill, bayonet fighting, gas helmet drill, musketry, and lectures were usually confined to the morning and early afternoon. We thought that we had rather an overdose of lecturing from our medical officer, the M.O., on sanitation and the care of the feet. Trench feet, one lecture always began, is that state produced by excessive cold or long-standing in water or liquid mud we soon got to know too much we felt about the use of whale oil and anti-frostbite grease the changing of socks and the rubbing and stamping of feet we did get rather fed up with it yet i believe we had only one case of trench feet in our battalion throughout the winter so perhaps it was worth our discomfort of attending so many lectures our C.O.'s lectures on trench warfare were always worth hearing. He was so tremendously keen and such a perfect and whole-hearted soldier. A chapter might be written on billet life. Here are a few more extracts from letters. October 13th. All day long this little inn has shaken from top to bottom. There is one battery about a hundred yards away that makes the whole house rattle like the inside of a motor-bus. The Germans might any time try and locate the battery, and a shell would reduce the house to ruins. Yet the old woman here declares she will not leave the house as long as she lives. It is a strange place, this belt of land behind the firing line. The men are out of the trenches for three days, and it is their duty, after perhaps a running parade before breakfast, 
and two or three hours' drill and inspection in the morning, to rest for the remainder of the day. In the morning you will see all the evolutions of company drill carried out in a small meadow behind a strip of woodland. In the next field an old man and woman are unconcernedly hoeing a cabbage patch. Then behind here are a battalion's transport lines, with rows of horses picketed. Along the road an ASC convoy is passing, each lorry at regulation distance from the next. In the afternoon you will see groups of Tommies doing nothing most religiously, smoking cigarettes, writing letters home. From six to eight the estaminets are open, and everyone flocks to them to get bad beer. They are also open an hour at midday, and then the orderly officer, accompanied by the provost-sergeant, produces an electric silence with, Any complaints? It does not pay an estaminet keeper to dilute his beer too much, or else he will lose his license. I often wonder if these peasants think much. Think they must have done at the beginning, when their men were hastily called up. But now, after fifteen months of war? It is the children, chiefly, who are interested in the aeroplanes, shining like eagles, silver-white against the blue sky, or in the boom from the battery across the street. But for their mothers and grandparents, these things have settled into their lives. They are all one with the canal and the poplar trees. If a squad starts drilling on their lettuces, they are tremendously alert. But as for these other things, they are not interested, only unutterably tired of them. And after a while you adopt the same attitude. The noise of the guns is boring, and you hardly look up at an aeroplane unless it is shrapneled by the Archies, anti-aircraft guns. Then it is worth watching the pinprick flashes dotting the sky all around it, leaving little white curls of smoke floating in the blue. That billet was close to the firing line. Here is a letter from a village eight miles back. 20th October, 1915 We came out here on Monday. The whole division marched out together. It was really an impressive sight, over a mile of troops on the march. Perfect order, perfect arrangement. Where the road bent, you could often see the column for a mile in front, a great snake curling along the right side of the road. Occasionally an adjutant would break out of the line to trot back and correct some straggling, or a C.O. would emerge for a gallop over the adjacent plough-land. Our company is billeted in a big, prosperous farm. The men are in a roomy barn and look very comfortable. We are in a big room, on the right as you enter the front door of the farm. On a tiled floor stands a round table with an oilcloth cover originally of a bright red pattern, but now subdued by constant scrubbings to the palest pink with occasional scarlet dottings. There are big tall windows, a wardrobe and sideboard, a big chimney-place fitted with a coke stove, and on the walls hang three very dirty old prints. The only war touch, beside our scattered possessions, is a picture from a French illustrated of Le Saint de Vermeer. Outside is a yard animated by cows, turkeys, geese, chicken, and ducks. Also a donkey and a peacock, not to mention the usual dogs and cats. At 5 a.m. I am awakened by an amazing chorus. 
The patron is a strong, competent man, with many fine buxom daughters, who do the farm work with great capacity and energy. Henriette with a pitchfork is strength and grace in action. Tommy is much in awe of her. She hustles the pigs relentlessly. The sons are at the war. Etienne and Marcel, aged ten and eight respectively, complete the family, with Madame, of course, who makes inimitable coffee, and various grandparents who appear in white caps and cook and bake all day. I have just paid out, all in five-and-twenty franc notes. In the field every man has his own pay-book which the officer must sign, while the company quartermaster-sergeant sees that his acquittance-roll is also signed by Tommy. We had a small table and chair out in the yard, and in an atmosphere of pigs and poultry I dealt out the blue and white oblongs which have already in many cases been converted into bread. For that is where most of the pay-money goes, there and in the estaminets. The bread-ration is always small, the biscuit-ration overflowing. Bully beef, by the way, is simply ordinary corned beef. I watched cooking operations yesterday, and saw some fifty tins cut in half with an axe, clean-hewn asunder, and the meat deftly hoiked with a fork into the field-kitchen, or cooker, which is a range and boiler on wheels. This was converted into a big stew, and served out into Dixie's, camp kettles, and so to the men's canteens. This afternoon our company practised an attack over open country. I was surprised to find the men so well trained. I had imagined that prolonged trench warfare would have made them stale. The country is very flat. There are no hedges. The only un-English characteristics are the poplar rows, the dried beans tied round poles like Mother Gamp umbrellas, and the wayside chapels and crucifixes. Yesterday afternoon Edwards and I got in a little revolver practice just near, and afterwards we had an energetic game of hockey, with sticks and an empty cartridge case. Altogether billet life was very enjoyable. On November 1st Captain Dixon joined our battalion and took over B Company. For over four months I worked under the most good-natured and popular officer in the battalion. We were always in good spirits while he was with us. "'I can't think why it is,' he used to say. "'I'm not at all a jolly person, yet you fellows are always laughing, and in my old regiment it was always the same.' He was a fearful pessimist, but a fine soldier. His delight used to be to get a good fire blazing in billets, sit in front of it with a novel, and then deliver a tirade against the discomfort of war. The great occasion used to be when the arch-pessimist, our quartermaster, was invited to dinner. Then Edwards, the mess-president, would produce endless courses, and the two pessimists would warm to a delightful duologue on the fatuity of the staff, the army, and the government. "'By Jove, we are the biggest fools on this earth,' Dixon would say at last. "'We're fools enough to be led by fools,' Jim Potter would reply. And somehow we were all more cheerful than ever. End of chapter 2